In this episode of the Network State Podcast, we cover how history is a cryptic epic of twisting trajectories and microhistory. What the hell does that mean? Well, we get into that in the episode, but in short, the scale of history is huge, the time frame is long, and the measurements aren't just noisy, but intentionally corrupted. We then get into what microhistory is and how it's the history of reproducible systems. In other words, how it's a precise log of measurements we can use to increase the accuracy of how we predict the future. We explore how this applies to finance, space flight, and the scientific method, and how it's also a way we'll be able to hold network states accountable for their actions if their microhistory is transparent and publicly available. We're just starting out and could really use your support. So if you like this episode, please determinately push that like button off a cliff into a plush land of unicorn fairies. Share this episode, comment, let us know your thoughts on microhistory and sign up for our newsletter. I promise we'll make it worth it for you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Network State Podcast. How are we doing today, Raf? Ah, so good. So happy to be back. Awesome. So today we're going to be covering microhistory and macrohistory, and specifically history as a cryptic epic of twisting trajectories. Go ahead, share my screen here. You can all follow along. All right. Wow. So first point we have here. Um, is what does this even mean, right? What is history as a cryptic epic of twisting trajectories? Um, it's the same question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, very classic of Balaji to use this kind of very complicated language, but he does a good job of then explaining it all step by step, which is what we're going to try to do for you right here. He is um, verbose. He is very verbose. <laughs> Um, okay, so um, he says that we can encode all of this into a phrase, which is history is a cryptic epic of twisting trajectories. Cryptic because the narrators are unreliable and often intentionally misleading. Epic because the timescales are so long that you have to consciously sample beyond your own experience and beyond any human lifetime to see patterns. Twisting because there are curves, cycles, collapses, and non-straightforward patterns, and trajectories because history is ultimately about the time evolution of human beings, weird way to say that, which maps <laughs> the physical idea of a dynamical system of a set of particles progressing through time. So there's a lot wait, wait, that wait. I could already, yeah, this is already can, so complicated. Can we break down just those again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What does so epic we, mean? Yeah, yes. Yeah. We have to go through each one, uh, one at a time. All right. So, I mean, the crypt, the cryptic piece. Uh, so, because the narrators are unreliable and often intentionally misleading, we've talked about in previous episodes. Um, and um, for those who True. haven't heard, right, the the um, short note here is that history is either written by the winners or that history can be influenced by other actors. And so you don't really know whether or not the history that is being taught or told to you is actually reliable. It's often intentionally misleading. And so you kind of have to have a way of um, verifying that. That's just, the first uh, point. Just on that, because I know yeah. we're, we, uh, hopefully we get to it, if not this episode, the next episode. Mm -hmm. um, the point about 
like I, I think what it highlights and, and and what he introduces there is just understand that you know in a long form like if you look at ancient history where the data is so scarce and so open to interpretation and then also the data itself is like not super accurate not well code co well codified or even almost impossible to contextualize um in that long form history what we're left with is really what is the purpose of that history you know why are we seeking out that and i think that lesson applies today as well it's as information becomes more and more uh i mean per, per i guess present we just have more information um the way that history is framed today should also be like well what is the purpose to to for this interpretation of history and we should be transparent about that um, and if you're saying well i'm i want the history to be uh portraying me in this light that should be open and it should be a real discussion of it and and i don't think that detracts from the value of history it's just let's let's be honest about it and and understand that there probably isn't something such as an unbiased interpretation of history exactly yeah like we we need to understand that there are multiple actors influencing what is being taught what is being said as we've covered in previous episodes and um and so you have to be skeptical here okay yeah. moving to epic uh he says because the time scales are so long that you have to consciously sample beyond your own experience and beyond any human lifetime to see patterns this one i completely agree with and it makes a lot of sense it's something that we've seen uh time and time again with traders um, and someone who talks about this really well, I would say, is Ray Dalio talking about creating principles instead of just looking at what has happened in recent past to determine your investment thesis. Um, and those principles are based off these patterns that we can see in how an economy has performed when you zoom out hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Um, mm -hmm. And even further than that, right, like how has trade evolved internationally over hundreds and hundreds of years so that um, if you were, and this is just a simple example, but if you were to look at the 1929 Great Depression crash and then compare that to the 2008 crash, you have what he calls another one of those, right? So an example that you can point to in the past to inform how you should act and react in the future when that thing happens again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think epic is, I mean, these kind are marketing of a words to, for me. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> it's like, it's why, a weird way to describe that. I would have said like patterns or something like that. But epic is... or something, or, you know, like beyond. Yeah, but um, like uh, unbounded or something. But there, yeah, to that point, um, I think obviously we mentioned even you know, like once you start mentioning crashes, I think uh, earlier on, there's, there's the uh, idea of... Um, the the dutch you know it's the famous yeah. dutch uh implosion of the tulip trade or tulip exchange yeah um but can you what can I you give is, like a a quick master class for listeners on that or is it too long i mean it, it's just that you know all those pretty pictures you might have seen them on social media of the pretty pictures of like when the netherlands decides all, all the tulips are blooming it's like an insane market and it, and it goes into all that that yeah. used to be the primary like stock exchange value it was it was basically what like bitcoin was last year i guess where everybody was like wow tulips are the best and and then one person was like well you know they're just tulips and and everybody was like wait what do you mean <laughs> and then it, and it imploded and then people were like okay maybe we should regulate how you know houses are allowed to sell certain 
uh, like what derivatives you're allowed to sell and why and what is it actually based on. Um, and so I think it's a, because I think tulips themselves were a difficult commodity to, to mm -hmm. work with. And, and there's a big point that also, it, interestingly enough, um, I don't know how much this is talked about, but the reason why tulips were chosen also because they portrayed a very interesting genetic, like biological evolution. So like mastering the color of, of what tulips you wanted to have was was the trade you know but that how you know that was kind of like a secret process and what you actually did with that probably shouldn't have been the foundation for an entire like stock exchange or thing like that which i guess you could say with the same thing with blockchain if you don't understand it yeah like how do we did not um, how do we denominate value right and but, it's funny that that was flowers <laughs> at a certain point well there was seashells even before that and you know bones and stuff before that so, well so yeah, that's I mean, like... that's the point i wanted to make is that in each one of these i think when when we look at other experiential or like things beyond your own um your own understanding your own lifetime i think good reference point or what's the infrastructure that was being used um, if you want to go way back, clay tablets, you know, literally right. receipts for, for exchange way back uh, 5,000 years ago, 4,500 years ago. Um, what's the infrastructure that's being used today and how does that enable the fluidity of information or trade? Um, and you can sort of see, okay, well, if it's, if it's this volume at this scale, then we should expect shocks like this, for example. And, and that's what I think people get really excited about um, when it comes to new technology maybe that's how I would understand epic is like how epic is the infrastructure basically yeah I agree with that and then we've got twisting which is because there are curves cycles collapses and non-straightforward patterns which to me like is kind of similar to why we look at the patterns in the first place is to see these twists and curves and cycles uh, and collapses uh, but it's just another way of saying it's not linear right so and it's not straightforward so you have mm -hmm. to see like what is the trajectory been uh, in the past in whatever shape it took uh, mm -hmm. to then be able to see, oh, we have the same shape today um, if we're plotting this on a graph. Yeah, I, the way I understand this as well is uh, if you can focus in on, on what are those moments and the factors that build up to those moments where you, you know it changes, it goes from a positive velocity to like a negative velocity, um, or acceleration, I guess. <laughs> I do econ, yeah. not not physics. Um, <laughs> if there are any positions out there, positions—that's not even the right word, is it? <laughs> um, but any case, any case, when that exact moment and what are those factors where it reverses the trend? Um, I I guess that's what you would mean by by twisting, which is interesting to follow. I guess if you can, um, very difficult mm. to do even in your own life. Um, but worth worth the exercise, and I think journaling helps with that on the personal level. I know I've gotten into it. I tell other people to get into it probably more than I get into it. Um, but I think that's what that's what we're seeing with blockchain is here. We're you know we're journaling the we we have a we have a historic case of what's happening. Let's see if we can you know if that information is being cataloged, can we categorize uh, those factors and learn from when the shift happens? Basically, totally. All right, and then last we have trajectories because history is ultimately about the time evolution of human beings. Again, I don't know why you say that, which maps to the physical idea of a dynamical system of a set of particles progressing through time. So we'll have to get to that point because that part is actually a very interesting point um, when you're thinking about, uh, okay, and this is gonna sound like way out there, but with space-time, we're essentially thinking uh, that a particle 
doesn't have a past, present, and future. It just is. And you can see the trajectory mm -hmm. of that particle throughout its past, present, and future. And therefore, it's just like if we were to think about it in a 3D space, um, a squiggly line, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's grossly oversimplifying, obviously. But um, if we can think of all of these different um, uh, trajectories as a particle in space-time, and we can know exactly where it was at any point in time, and theoretically, you know, predict where it will be in some point in the near future, um, that's really exciting because then we can, um, one, have this objective form of truth, which is this uh, blockchain verified history where we all agree on what happened in the past or there, there is some unanimity there. Um, and because of that, the kinds of predictions that we can make become more and more accurate for near future. And that could be very interesting for traders or any other kind of um, entrepreneurs, people that are looking for like the trends in the, to take advantage of or to capitalize on. It, very, just to build off of that, I think we do, we hopefully will get onto the point about finance and 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 why, you know, that's important for, why, why that could be significant for trade. Yeah. Uh, but there is a uh, world, like a real world example today of when a market was taken over by a platform, I, I forgot which uh, which form of uh, I, I forgot which exact like unit was being traded. If it was uh, equity, I think it was equity. Some I don't know which market at which level, but there's this there was this platform that came out which just handled all of the trades and then was able to sort of identify the moments where there would be like an action needed to be taken. So basically taking the role of the broker. And when that happens, suddenly the volume for that specific asset uh, in terms of the trading volume just like went down. Like no, nobody was trading it anymore because there was no like gray material where, you know, you're calling this price, I'm calling that price. And it's based off that gap that we can, that there's an actual market for it, you know, right? Because it's in the gap that we can then charge a fee. Uh, accordingly, because we've we've matched that uh, mismatch of information. But when there's a platform that's taking the input and the output for you, the the information is is there's no asymmetry. It's all it's all being plugged in with each other, and therefore there's no reason to trade because there's no there's no margin to make on that. I and see, yeah. uh, that's that's something really interesting that's already happened in some. I, I'm going to say like equity markets, mm. um, already here with some of the guys we talked to in London. Um, but so this is a real world example of where actually too much information, too much uh, data like analysis takes away the human element and uh, not to like justify that the human element actually should be so valuable that that is the basis for an entire industry, uh, especially right. when it comes to brokering, uh, brokering equity where, you know, what's the added value there? But um, yeah, that catas could be catastrophic, you know. <laughs> shifts in in uh, financial markets uh, for that kind of once you have that stuff in place and and maybe one of the reasons why there is not so much of an uptake and also why this is perhaps a fringe conversation versus a mainstream conversation yeah i mean it's going to be really interesting to see how this impacts um our evolution and and patterns and economics um so moving into now micro history versus macro history so this is like one of the topics that is going to be uh gargantuan to tackle but we're going to give it our best shot here. 
Um, so we're at uh, microhistory is the history of reproducible systems, uh, one which has few enough variables that it can be reset and replayed from the beginning in a series of controlled experiments. It is history as a quantitative trajectory, history as a precise log of measurements. So um, I don't know if that definition works, uh, Raf. If we can, you know, how would we say this in layman's terms? Yeah, for me, it, it uh, again, I'm going to bring in the individual personal example. It reminds me of um, uh, Atomic Habits. Uh, mm -hmm. I forgot his name. Actually. James Clear. <laughs> James Clear, right? Yeah, <laughs> I love that name. I'm always like, it's a name that he's felt pretty like clear. It was made yeah. <laughs> to sell the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but great book. Everybody should get it. But the way I see it, okay, look. This guy, James Clear, thought a lot about how to like improve individual action by understanding what are the processes for decision making and how to reduce that at an atomic level so that you can then turn that into habits. So basically, like um, form, make that the foundation or form for your life. Uh, here, I see the same model applied. This is the way that I, I would understand this is microhistory. Let's look at the things that we know we can keep happening because we know those are the, the smallest uh, actions that we can identify. And if you link them up together, uh, then you're, you're going to start seeing impact. So every day, you know, the U UK stock exchange opens and, and the prices are announced and people can, and then that means, okay, people can review that information and people can start trading. So that for me is like a micro uh, event uh, of history, which is happening, and yet, like, has all of these factors which are being measured and having a tremendous impact on what's going on in the world. Yeah, um, it's 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 really hard to it's really hard to put this in layman's terms. But I like my stab at it would be uh, that it's it's like the scientific method on a micro scale. So, what can we test in a small enough scale? enough times that we get the same result and therefore can predict with really good accuracy that if mm. X happens, Y happens. Mm. Um, and we're going to dive into biology stab at this, but to be honest, I think this actually makes it more complicated. Um, but mm. here we go. So um, he says that we can see this uh, with technologies like the Kalman filter, um, which was used for steering the spaceship used in the moon landing. Roughly speaking, the Kalman filter uses past film, measurements. <laughs> that was great. Um, so yeah, like X uh, open bracket in T minus one, X T minus two, X T minus three to inform the estimate of a system's current state, X to T, the action that should be taken U to T and the corresponding prediction of the future state X T plus one, should that action be taken? Um, <laughs> can we, can which, we just which, ask uh, in the comments, has anybody actually read this and understood this? Please leave a comment if you have. We'd love to talk to you. <laughs> actually, yeah, like any uh, yeah, physics uh, people, we would love for you to get involved in the conversation and, and, and like try to explain this in layman's terms. Um, that would be awesome. Um, but anyway, so to like why this is relevant to microhistory, he says, for example, it uses past velocity, direction headings, fuel levels, and the like to recommend how a space shuttle should be steered at the current time step. Crucially, 
if the microhistory is not accurate enough, if the confidence intervals around each measurement are too wide, or if we, or if say the velocity estimate is wrong altogether, then the Kalman filter does not work and Apollo doesn't happen. So to me, that part made a lot more sense. And it's essentially just saying, okay, if we have these metrics that tell us uh, about the certain health or the certain um, performance of a specific thing, and we're using all these different metrics to then determine what should happen uh, for this thing. So without getting too abstract, let's use a, the example of a startup, right? If we're looking at weekly growth rate and um, gross revenue and number of users, right? And the weekly growth rate um, is based off number of users or revenue doesn't really matter. Um, and that is slowly declining and we look at that, we can say, okay, well, if that's declining um, for revenue, but the number of users is increasing, then we're making less revenue per user. And therefore we should look at how do we make more revenue per user, right? So it's just looking at like individual measurements that help you determine what actions you should take in the immediate future and to the extreme. And that's why it's micro history. Um, so I don't know how 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 does that work? Uh, I, I mean, it works for me. Like, for I think the way that it breaks down, the the way I see it, where you I guess you could compare this to if you have the right information, a rational actor will do X, Y, and Z, because the inputs are being analyzed under this system, and the, and we trust the system, and we trust the inputs. Um, and therefore, this is the action being taken. I guess that would make this not micro history, but microeconomics. Um, or if you go into financial economics, if, if like you just said, if the price of the stock goes up or down, and um, this happens every single day, well, um, we're saying, let's say if it goes up, up, up three days in a row, then we're going to say, okay, great, this this thing is on the rise. Therefore, you know, buy or something else. Um, and that makes sense if you know you believe that either the trend will keep continuing. Therefore, right. you know the inputs send the, the same. The uh, past outputs. can predict the future in some way. Yeah, yeah, and and you assume that okay, well, people who are getting this information are also interpreting this information in the same way that I am. Uh, yeah. Of course, that is not always the case. There's other motivations, but I think for things around physics, uh, it's a very good vacuum to put this into. I am not sure exactly where he's going with this. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, like, why, why do we want to apply this model here? Apart from, okay, I guess this is the way you want to apply all of the um, information that we're, how, how, you know, that we would presumably be collecting via the blockchain for a network state. Yeah, I think that's where he's going with it. Um, and it's kind of okay. So first, let's dive into the the next piece here, which is. Um, how it relates to finance, and then we can dive into some some fun examples as well. So like um, he says, at a surface level, the Kalman filter resembles the kind of time series analysis that's common in finance. The key difference is that the Kalman filter is used on reproducible systems, while finance is typically a non-reproducible system. If you're using the Kalman filter to guide a drone from point A to point B, but you have a bug in your code and the drone crashes, you can simply pick up the drone, put it back on the launch pad at point A and try again. Because you can repeat the experiment over and over, you can eventually get very precise measurements and a functioning guidance algorithm. That's a reproducible system. 
In finance, however, you usually can't keep rerunning a trading algorithm that makes money and gets the same result. Eventually, your counterparties will adapt and get wise. A key difference relative to our drone example is the presence of inanimate or animate objects or other humans who won't always do the same thing given the same input. In fact, they can often be adversarial, observing and reacting to your actions, intentionally confounding your predictions, especially if they can profit from doing so. Past performance is no guarantee of future results in finance, as opposed to physics. Unlike the situation with the drone, a market isn't a reproducible system. So he says, microsystory thus has its limits, but it's an incredibly powerful concept. If we have good enough measurements on the past, then we have a better prediction of the future in an extremely literal sense. If we have tight confidence intervals on our measurements of the past, so I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to read this because I think that just complicates things. Um, mm -hmm. But conversely, the more uncertainty about your past, the more confused you are about where you're from and where you're going, the more likely your rocket will crash. It's Orwell more literally than he ever expected. He who controls the past controls the future in the direct sense that he has better control theory. Only a civilization with a strong capacity for accurate microhistory could ever make it to the moon. Um, so just to quickly touch on this point, and then we'll finish this paragraph here, is um, he who controls the past controls the future because he says, you know, has better control theory without diving into that too much. It's just uh, a better uh, probability of success when it comes to predicting the near future because they have more accurate measurements of the past. Um, and so he says, this is a powerful analogy for civilization. A group of people who doesn't know who they are or where they came from won't ever make it to the moon, let alone Mars. Uh, can we make it more than an analogy? And then he jumps into microhistory. So before we go into that, um, comments on micro, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the two things jump out at me at the end. Firstly, I think our uh, unpacking at the beginning of uh, that, his section actually really helped. <laughs> Yeah, like, for sure. <laughs> like, you, get, you get into it. You're like, okay, no, actually, I kind of see, you know, I understand what he's trying to say, I believe. At least the words make sense this time in sequence, as opposed to in the beginning, where it's just like, oh, yeah. come on, you know, <laughs> give he's, us. <laughs> he's giving you the bait at the beginning, right? Instead of like, yeah. you know, we have our little realization moment once he clarifies everything later on. Um, yeah. But yeah. Which I guess like, is why we're doing this, right? We're yeah. opening it up. Two dudes chatting about something we're passionate about, <laughs> <laughs> which is what is all of this about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I think the point that jumps out at me, uh, again, analogous to this, um, is is the rational actor aspect of it. Because I think even for civilization, he's he's talking about the civilization being able to make it to the moon, but that's an action that's being done intrinsically you know as once you're within that civilization but there's going to be a competing civilization that's going to try to achieve something you know it's not there's one civilization for all of society all of the world um all people there's there's going to be this other actor and that uh that you get into the same problem at that point where it's like well uh, again there's another human element where you don't know how they're going to react and probably they're just going to react to make it worse for you so um yeah, actually, for me, this is more just a better support of, of you see it in econ, you see it in IR, you see it, I guess, in philosophy or ethics, which is game theory, like, yeah, uh, where this That's really actually go as well. Yeah, yeah, where this actually makes sense is, 
you could have the best information available again is your actor is the opposite actor ra rational what is the, what are their motivations let's say they have the same information access to the same information because okay it seems like that's what this is going for uh doesn't mean anything you know if they're if they're going for a completely different goal um and so i it's like it's like yay great but okay game theory we're back you know we're back to the drawing board uh, other states are going to act in a way to knock down other network state ideas, even before there's a majority of network state ideas, because it's in the interest of traditional nation states to maintain their hegemony, right? Yeah. So, so even if you can say that the network state model to, for history is a better model, um, you're going to have, you're, if it's really that much better, it's probably going to have a much stronger uh, wall to push against. Uh, or like some obstacle that's going to try and stop it, possibly. I think, yeah, I think it it just really increases competition and the stakes, right? Um, it's not like these methods will completely change the game. They will, however, change the focus of the players and they will change the uh, sense of quote-unquote objective truths. And that yeah. does make it like a more fair playing field in, or yeah. It's not a fair playing field, but a more fair playing field than what we're currently playing on, I would say, where um, there's a lot more operating in the dark and a lot more manipulation that is easier to do. So Super topical. Super topical, just as we're seeing with, in the U.S. at this time, with all of the classified documentation being mishandled and realizing, okay, well, what is the volume of classified information and who actually has access to it? And that's just for the United States. Imagine that that's that scale for every single other country. I mean the size we're, it's funny because i've only heard the side of like what's going on and what's the impact of u.s politics but imagine what china does with its yeah. information it's, not, it's like it's, it's mind-boggling it's at least times three you know just on sheer population yeah. yeah yeah and then and then probably it's like magnitudes of tens or hundreds maybe yeah and and that's just in the i mean we're talking maybe just in the last decade so so wait you know at that point what's their frequency and what's their model for information because that blows anybody out of the water by like just insane margins i, I just i don't even know how you if, if it's a war on information and who controls it uh i mean it's over <laughs> yeah i mean i think so you know i want to close out on micro history because i know we got to wrap up but um what is microhistory and more importantly, why is it important, right? So I think the distinction that he's making here is that microhistory crucially is for reproducible systems. Um, what we're talking about with the non-reproducible systems where there will be game theory involved, et cetera, I think is what he's going to dive into with macrohistory, which we'll cover on the next episode. But mm -hmm. um, for microhistory, right, it's the idea that there are certain things that we can measure uh, very accurately. And um, if we measure enough of those things, we have a better sense of what could happen in the future with a higher probability than without those measurements. And so it's basically just um, a way to think about uh, history as uh, a set of data points that if measured very accurately in many different ways, 
can actually be a fairly reliable way to predict the near future. Is that yeah. fair? I, I think it's it's a good premise. My I, I see it as like here's the, yeah here's the headline. That's the headline. That's the content that we're trying to understand. I'd love to hear more of like actual historical support for that, um, because actually it's unfortunate that the example that he actually brings in is a like physics example for right. a historical event, but it's a but it's a physics example and you know the things that matter the most to how the well-being of a civilization are unlikely to be like breakthroughs in physics my guess is but on the day-to-day -day, it's probably going to be market commodity i don't know health trade whatever you know <laughs> any anything actually related to economics which which is a much more difficult system and or even climate you know like climate you know, can you really predict that from past to future in a way that I don't know uh, that you can make uh, better in, uh, choices? Yeah, hopefully. And, and, but how much that's how much is that represented across everything that you're doing? I don't know. Right, and also you know even if we nix the whole prediction part, which I think is an important piece of it, but it's not the most crucial. The more crucial piece is that we have this log of mm -hmm. um, what happened. Right, and it's yeah. precise, yeah. and it's on multiple different um, variables that are now yeah. going to be indisputable or um, immutable for the future. Right, and th yeah. that alone and, is is powerful. Well, that alone, and <laughs> I was gonna add, just beyond. I mean, like, great that it's indisputable and immutable, but really just that it's transparent and publicly accessible right. that actually right. that's the huge factor that's right. if you're telling me this is all the information that we have uh whatever metrics they are and everybody can have access to them that's a revolution that's a completely revolution. And completely so, so that's what i want to see but, yeah. same same with you know if this is presented at un type conferences where everybody's on the same page and like we talked about in previous episodes so yeah just having the just having the measurements um, and knowing that they're unchangeable uh, is is a is a huge step forward in the right direction. Um, okay, anything to close out on this episode before wrapping up? No, I'm excited for macro history. Yeah, I'm, we got personally. I I did more macroeconomics, so so that should be fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I if think there's any link. <laughs> it, yeah. I think uh, I think that one will be also very relevant to some of the, the points that we just touched on here. So guys, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to like, comment, share the episode Subscribe. if you enjoyed it. Yeah, gently caress that like button, show it who's boss at the same time. Um, we'll see you in the next one. Mm -hmm.